0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening.
2: Good morning. This is Stephanie Stuckey. Welcome to the Stuckey's Hour. I just got back from being on the road. I spent five days traveling all across South Carolina and Stopping at the fun kitschy roadside attractions along the way. I'll talk a little bit about my adventures later in the show. But we're delighted to have a very special guest today. We're going to bring him on right now. His name is Ryan Schaefer. He is the grandson of the founder of South of the Border. Alan Schaefer is the founder and. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with South of the Border, those iconic signs that you see all over I-95 heading north and south of Dillon, South Carolina, where they're located. And South of the Border has been a landmark of the Southeast for nearly 70 years. They've got their trademark signs with really funny sayings like, you never saw such a place, and they feature their mascot Pedro and if you've pulled over as I have recently there's a ton of fun things to do and of course a lot of souvenirs. So I'm going to hand it over to Ryan Schaefer right now and um, Ryan welcome to the show we really appreciate you getting up early you're on an earlier time zone so thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: So, I want to kick it off just by getting the history of South of the Border, if you can tell us. I know it started as a beer stand,
0: (laughs) so tell
2: us the background. How did did this amazing place begin?
0: Um, My grandfather and great-grandfather were in the beer distribution business, and they also bottled a soft drink called Cola. I think as far back as 1907. Um, so after prohibition ended and they started back in the beer business, uh, they sold all over South Carolina, but Robinson County, North Carolina, which is right beside Little Rock, which is where they're based was a dry County. There were no alcohol sales. So he wanted to be able to sell to those customers. So he bought a small piece of property beside the state line and started selling beer to the people from robinson county
2: got it Um, that's fascinating that it it started in large part because i know especially in the south there are a lot and to this day until very recently i know quite a few counties are still dry so that's a booming business
0: still has very few on-site alcohol permits they have to be on the interstate corridor and there's some other criteria you have to meet. So it's still pretty strict in Robson County.
2: Yeah, I know since I just came back from South Carolina, it's a bit of an aside, but you cannot openly advertise that it's an alcohol place. you got the red dot on the side of the buildings. Yeah. So that's how you can identify if a place sells alcohol. They had these giant red dots on the buildings and so if you're not familiar with that and you start seeing them, it's a bit of a curiosity. So, yeah, the sale of alcohol in the South especially, there's a whole history connected with that, and it's fascinating to me that that's, in large part, how South of the Border began. Yes. So, started as a beer depot, and I think the, the name of that first stand was South of the Border Beer Depot, and so how did, how did the place grow from there?
0: Um, from there, it, it kind of part of it was the state. The state required that if you were going to sell alcohol, you had to sell food. So he started selling food. And the uh, tourists coming down 301 to Florida New York, you know, started buying a good bit of food. So at some point, a uh, salesman from, I believe, Florida was coming through on his way back home and he had souvenirs and he was out of money, and he he needed gas, and he wanted to eat. You know, he asked my grandfather if he would take his samples, and then return feed him and give him gas. And he took them, you know, not really sure what he was going to do with them. And he said they sold out, you know, before guy got home, he'd already mailed an order for another batch. So, it it just kind of happened by chance.
2: Oh my gosh, that's such a terrific story. I did not know that, and does yeah. the salesman know that he was part of creating one of America's most iconic road stands, roadside attractions?
0: <laughs> I don't know because, you know, back then I imagine the order was mailed to him. So yeah. it, it probably took several weeks before he could get it or could respond and send more product. So I'm not sure. I,
2: wow. As and,
0: anxious as my grandfather is, I'm sure he was already outsourcing it by then.
2: That's terrific. And then you started on 301, and actually when I went there last week, we drove along 301 because we were determined to see South Carolina taking the back roads. What happened when the interstate came along in the early 1950s? Did you just luck out that you were situated close enough to I-95 that it wasn't a problem, or did your grandfather have to move his store and his location to be right there at the, at the exit?
0: Um, no, I I think it was more he moved the interstate. Um, Yep. The interstate was supposed to go through Marlboro County, which is 25 miles north of us, or west. And the the people there, the farmers there, they didn't want it. They, you know, they said there was going to be a lot of vagrants, a lot of trash, noise, and they didn't want to disturb their fields and farms and, uh... Little Rock, which is where my grandfather was from and grew up, did kind of the same thing when he was a small kid. They didn't want the train. The train went to Dillon, which is nearby. Uh, Dillon grew, and Little Rock went away. Wow. So he kind of had the insight to see that the interstate was a good thing, not a bad thing.
2: That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of small towns that probably regret that. I know Stuckey's. When my grandfather started, it was a very similar history. We started in 1937, so just about a decade before y'all. But we really started building our stores in the in the 40, the late 40s after World War II. And then when the interstate highway came along, we had to make a decision of how to adapt, and we moved our stores. And so, how yeah. fortunate for y'all that. South of the border was still right alongside I ninety five because it really is a mainstay and a staple of driving up and down that that interstate. So tell me about the billboards. When did those really come into existence? Was that when the interstate came along?
0: Um, he had there. There were billboards on three hundred one. I've seen pictures of mm-hmm. obviously way before my time, um, and then he expanded it. When the interstate came along. At one time, I'm pretty sure they were from, I think he had one or two in New York or New Jersey.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: That's yeah. amazing. All the way down to Georgia. <laughs> wow. It's just recently, we put two more back in Georgia. Um, and they it's go as far north as Virginia.
2: Does it say south of the border, 400 miles? Yeah. <laughs> Like nah, how, how far away says, is the furthest?
0: <laughs> Fill up with gas here and your next stop would be at south of the border. It's about 300 miles out.
2: That's pretty far away. And how many billboards do you have total?
0: <sighs> it fluctuates. Um, right now, uh, probably in the 230, 240 range.
2: And am I correct, you have your own billboard company? We do. And you are these painted, or are they
0: printed? They painted. Most are, uh, vinyl. We switched to vinyl, I don't know, nine or ten years ago. And, um, you know, our crew, I think it's five guys, usually, they keep it up, and they try to keep up with the neon signs around the property, which they can't always seem to do.
2: Well, I am somewhat obsessed with billboards because in our, at our peak in the 1970s, mid-1970s, Stuckey's had about 600 billboards, and we had our own sign painting company as well. And those classic signs, I think from the peak of the Great American Road Trip, are such a part of not only our cultural history, but their art. And yeah. it's it's a fading art there's so few sign painters out there anymore that do billboards because they are the vinyl and I understand the practicality and the need to use the vinyl but there's something very special when you drive by a billboard that has been hand painted
0: it is but an artist also doesn't work as fast as a printer Mm -hmm. and when they think they're an artist they take the time
2: (laughs) So whether they're painting a sign or they're doing art on canvas for a home, there's a bit of an attitude there, perhaps. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm really interested in your slogans on the billboards, which South of the Border is almost as famous for your billboard slogans as you are for the actual attraction itself. So what's the backstory on those slogans? Who wrote them and who... Yeah, who was the creator behind that? Was that your grandfather, or did you have a marketing advertising firm?
0: No, we don't have. It was my grandfather, and then some of the new ones are mine. Um, just to make sure of the two.
2: And what's the story behind Pedro? Because he's been featured on all of the billboards and throughout the facility itself. Uh, every souvenir shop has something with Pedro on it. So how how did he come about?
0: So at some point in time, when he was adding on to the original beer depot, um, anytime he would order construction materials, the the company was you know billing it to or for the address they had uh, South of the Border Beer Depot because it was south of the North Carolina border. So the name kind of caught on, and he liked it. When the Mexican theme came about, he started going to Mexico to buy serapis, straw hats, just different items like that. And on one of his trips, he met two guys. One's name was Raphael. I can't remember the other guy's name. and they helped translate for him while he was there. and You know, took him around to different villages that made different things. And they wanted to come back with him. So he worked it out. I guess it wasn't a bigger issue back then than before Trump. So they, they wanted somebody. to
2: come back and, like, live in the U.S. It wasn't just yes. a, a trip. They're like, okay, we like this. Yeah, oh, wow.
0: they, they wanted to come back. So he, he brought them back, and they worked at the motel as... Um, used to our bell, bail, our bellman showed you to your room on a bicycle opened the room for you you know first class
2: on a bicycle
0: yeah on a bicycle oh that's and, terrific uh, <laughs> it's a pretty big complex I don't be yeah. kind of mean to make somebody run in front of you yeah um so the customers started started calling on Pedro just that's you know just what they started calling him, and it kind of stuck
2: and then that became your mascot. Yep. Got it.
0: And, and one of Raphael's workforce, uh, we got into auto business, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago for a few years. And he happened to work at that dealership. He still lives close by.
2: So the family's still still in the area,
0: they're, huh? They're still in the
2: area. Yeah, there is so much at south of the border. And I don't think people realize that, especially at your peak. It was not just an attraction that had some great souvenir stands and putt-putt golf and some fun things to do, but there's a motel, there was a convention center. So tell us some of the some of the things, especially at it, your. I guess you would say your peak was probably around the same time when Stuckey's peaked in the in the '60s and '70s, or the heyday of American travel by car. But what are some of the attractions that you've had over the years at South of the Border?
0: Um, I think in the early 60s, we had a par-3 lighted golf course, which was way ahead of its time. I think by the time we decided to tear it down is when it became popular.
2: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um,
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it didn't matter. We had bought Blenheim Ginger Ale, and we were building the Ginger Ale plant, and we needed that space for the plant.
2: So, you have a ginger ale plant?
0: Yes, we own uh, Blenheim ginger ale.
2: That's terrific.
0: It's uh, made in South Carolina, always has been, I think it's over 100 years old. So, that kind of went back to his bottling as a kid, mm-hmm. he, you know, it was something he wanted to do again.
2: So and bothered. I know you've had a cocktail lounge.
0: There was a cocktail lounge. There was a steakhouse back in the 60s and 70s that people drove for an hour and a half Mm -hmm. just to eat at. They waited in line. They served until the food ran out Um, every night. That was just how, how it worked. The food was flown in from Oklahoma City every day to the airport in Fayetteville.
2: I remember that as a kid. I remember that steakhouse and trying to get my parents to take us there and I do remember there being a line and we never got to eat there and it's not there anymore so no, missed my not. chance
0: it snowed real heavy one year and the roof on that section of the building caved in mm. they never put it back there
2: uh, yeah I know you've had a barber shop a variety store a post office a go-kart yeah, track
0: we had a I don't remember a go-kart track
2: mm. It's on your website. It's
0: a, a motocross track.
2: <laughs> okay, it says outdoor go-kart track, complete with other outdoor recreational facilities. That's It's on your website.
0: <laughs> it should say motocross. That's a typo.
2: <laughs> well, that's perfect for South Carolina, right? Yes. So, All right. so I would be very interested, and I'm getting a signal we might need to wrap this up, but I would like to know what's your journey how did you get involved in the business was it always understood that you would be the heir apparent after I mean did your father run it and then handed the reins over to you give us a bit of your history and how you came to be and your your role now as head of South of the Border
0: Um, I started out there when I was young 10 or 11 cleaning video games in the arcade then moved into one of the restaurants I think the Ice Cream PS serving ice cream at some point the shops and then the fireworks stores once i was old enough and uh i don't know i guess i I was the only grandchild that really showed interest in it the others worked at our beer distributorship and uh after my grandfather passed away my grandmother and myself ran it together and then when she passed away it's been me my father helps with the real estate some but he's pretty much retired he's 74 so he he likes to come and go when he wants know that things are taken care of and he can come and go when he wants
2: oh that's perfect now hold on just one second david i you're saying we have to have a break can we come back and ask ryan just a few more questions okay ryan if you don't mind we're going to take a minute break and we'll be right back
1: If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger
2: difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded show, on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: And we're back. So thank you for that for hanging on, Ryan, because I want to hear more about your journey. And you said you were the only grandchild that was interested in taking over the company. That was very similar to my own story with Stucky's I'm number five of seven grandchildren I was definitely not the heir apparent but I was the only one who was interested in it so I can definitely relate to that I'd like to know how well did you know your grandfather how old were you when he passed and do you have any stories you can share with us about your grandfather and what he taught you about business
0: Um, I was 25 that's best way so oh, I, I've you. been around oh, a, Ryan? a good bit. Yes.
1: You there? I don't know where Ryan. Is. Hello, Ryan. Hello. I can hear y'all.
2: You want to give him a call back, David? And
1: well, he's still attached. Uh, huh? I can hear y'all. Ryan, uh, Ryan can Hello? you hear us? Yes. Ryan. Yes.
2: Well, uh, while we're trying to work out our technical difficulties, I will talk a little bit about I'll talk a little bit about my visit to south of the border. Hopefully we'll get Ryan on, on shortly. What was really fascinating to me when I went to south of the border, first of all, it is incredibly well maintained. I frankly was expecting it to be a little dusty because it's been around a long time. But what impressed me the most was South of the Border is really known for their fiberglass figurines. They've got a jackalope. Of course, the statue I think people most recognize as part of South of the Border is this giant Mexican figure with a sombrero. And you can stand under the legs that are shaped like a semicircle. And it's you can see that for Ryan, probably I'm a mile so or Ryan. two away. Uh. And they're all freshly painted. Okay, they well, paint them every again, year. Yeah. So they're well-maintained. Some of the facilities are no longer in operation, but overall it's it's well worth the stop. And what surprised me the most was the, the Reptile Center, which is a first-rate quality attraction. They have in
1: – You should be on.
2: Okay, Ryan? Yes. Yeah. So I had a question for you, but I, I – detoured a little bit while we were having technical difficulties, so I'll continue the thread what I was talking about is the Reptile Center, which I was so impressed with when I toured it last week. It really is a zoo caliber quality facility. You have endangered alligators and crocodiles and a wide variety on exhibit of snakes. Many of them were venomous with big red venomous signs and and then some turtles, some really amazing species. So I'm interested in the in the backstory behind that. How how did you come to have this this attraction? And I, I really want to make sure our listeners know about this because even if you may not be into some of the souvenir stands which I love because I never can resist a gift shop It is well worth pulling over to see this reptile attraction. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Um, There was a doctor that was semi-local. His name is Sam Seashow, And he had a lot of these animals on his property um, in the lower state. And we met through a mutual friend, and that was an indoor putt-putt
2: oh that's and, right yeah there's like a section where you can pretty much tell like the turtle dome yeah. looks like it mm-hmm. used to be part of a putt-putt <laughs>
0: and the volcano where the snakes are was part of it yeah but,
2: okay <laughs> so
0: we had an outdoor pup putt so we really didn't need the indoor pup putt anymore and um, it, you know he was telling me how hard it was to take care of all these animals during the winter and you know and he'd just gotten out of control and uh so we, we came up with the idea and we changed it over and we brought them to the border. And it's just kind of grown from there. Um, Manny, the guy who manages it and takes care of the animals, is one of the few people that have been able to breed some of those endangered species in captivity. So, you know, it's, it's a little more than just a tourist attraction. It's also got value as far as helping to save some of those species.
2: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And the last room of the exhibit is devoted to conservation, and you've got some nice signage that goes into the importance of protecting these endangered species. So there's a great message and an educational component to the exhibit as well. So I highly encourage folks, and I can put some stuff up on our Facebook page and try to spread the word. It's it's a top rate facility and really glad I got to tour it Uh, so before we had our technical difficulties I had queued up some questions about your grandfather I'm really interested in how well you knew your grandfather how old you were when he passed and if you've got any stories you can share with us that are especially memorable to you how he passed down some knowledge to you or some business advice you know what you've learned about running south of the border from him
0: um, basically, that you know, if you want to do something, you've got to do it your way, and don't worry about other people's opinions and what they think. Um, so true. You know, that's you know, some people say it's tacky, others like it. Uh, I don't think it's offensive to anyone, or shouldn't be. And you know, you just have to do what you want to do.
2: How well did you know him?
0: Um, I knew him pretty well. I mean, I was twenty-five when he passed.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. I was uh, I was only twelve when my grandfather died, but I have very strong memories of going to stucky stores with him, and I really cherish those. And ne- never he worked knowing. every
0: day. Yeah, from nine thirty in the morning till I don't know seven thirty at night. So if I was at work, I saw him, you know, pretty much every day. Um, once I got into high school, he started taking me to souvenir and gift shows with him, just so I didn't realize it. I thought he was just taking me, but I guess it was so I would get a feel for, you know, buying and what to look for and, you know, trying to remember that you're buying for a tourist, not yourself.
2: Right? I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but that's one of the aspects of running Stucky's that I've most enjoyed. I love going to those souvenir shows. It's just an extravaganza of kitschy stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a real science and a, a business side to like you said, not only understanding what is going to sell and appeal to the customer, so you're not always it's, you know, you shouldn't, you have you to shouldn't understand base on what, what you like. Sell in a year. Yeah. But also getting the pricing right. What of your yeah. souvenir sells the most? What's your what are your most popular items?
0: Um coffee mugs sell really yeah. well t-shirts and then the uh, sombreros
2: really well that makes sense because you're very much identified with them so what about um, you know I have in the studio with me my favorite roadside souvenir is I'm a sucker for rubber alligators and Mm -hmm. I started collecting all different kinds I bought one at South of the Border for $2.99 it was a really good price point by the way How, how how many rubber alligators do you sell is that a popular item
0: it, it is, but it, it goes through stages. Um, the, you know, the crazy thing, that, like, every time there's a shark attack, for some reason, sharks teeth take off or the, oh my gosh. the sharks that look like the alligator. Um, so it kind of goes in in rotations. Um, last year, there was some show on HVR Cinemax that featured a lady in Florida in a pyramid scheme, and her husband was eaten by an alligator, and uh, the sales jumped on them again. Wow, that's crazy!
2: So uh, pay attention it, to pop culture cues for what's going to move. Interesting.
0: Yeah, but you know nowadays so many people follow their phones and don't stop. And I mean, like I know you took a long trip and stopped everywhere, and it was pretty enjoyable.
2: Oh, it's so but much. So many fun.
0: people get into following their navigation. They they don't even see what's beside the road. When they stop, it's a rush for the kids to run in, use the bathroom, get back in the car, and get to wherever they're going. And the parents, by the time they get there, are losing their mind Mm -hmm. because they haven't enjoyed anything. I mean, you know, they should take time, relax, and enjoy getting there as much as being wherever they're going.
2: I could not agree more. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And America is full of places like South of Border. But I'm not just saying this because you're our guest on today's show. South of Border really is one of those iconic Americana roadside attractions and consistently shows up on the top ten list of great places to pull over, like Wall Drugs and Mm -hmm. uh, Goofy Golf in Florida, uh, so we're getting close to wrapping up our segment with you. I'm interested in what what are your favorite roadside attractions? I'm sure you like to road trip. Where do you like to go? Have you been to Wall Drugs? Do you do you have some? Have you traveled I Route sixty six? I have been to Wall
0: Drugs just because it's so far. Yeah. Um, a lot of the older places in Florida I've been by. Um, I can't think of the name. Was it Boca Yes, WikiWatch TV. Where they had the cypress gardens and Mm -hmm. everything. You know, it's kind of sad seeing the old stores that have closed and, you know, gone away. Um, You know, they used to sell the seashells and everything else all the way down 301. But I, I think at some point it comes back because once people untether from their cell phones at some point, learn to read a regular map. Again, it'll it'll be a trendy thing to do.
2: Yeah, we brought along. I travel with two friends, and we brought along a map, a Rand McNally old school yeah. map, and looked at where we were going. And what is special about that is when you use the GPS, guess what? It tells you the fastest way from A to B. It
0: well, doesn't give you the
2: ba- back roads.
0: Yeah, it it definitely. Um I don't know how they come up with those algorithms, but they definitely affect people's property back.
2: Right. So I think this is the perfect note to end on. This is what Stuckies is all about as well, is reviving the great American road trip. We are seeing people, unfortunately, due to circumstances happening in the world with the pandemic, they are not flying as much, and they're driving
0: more. And they're driving again.
2: Yeah, RV sales are up 40%. We are seeing a resurgence in people getting on the road and hopefully as they're taking these journeys rediscover what's special about America. A lot of these places, like you said, are closed. It breaks my heart to drive by some of these attractions that I loved as a kid. I saw just this past year one of the Flintstones amusement parks, Yabba Dabba Dooland, mm-hmm. has closed there's only one Howard Johnson's restaurant left in America, and I've gotten conflicting reports about whether it's open or not. Whether it's open or not, there's one or there's none. These are iconic places. They're part of our cultural history and our landscape, and they need to be preserved. As far as I'm concerned, this is as much a cultural destination as going to the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. They're they're different, but they're, they equally hold value in what we consider to be artistic and part of our collective history as Americans. And we're losing that. And so I just want to say thank you for what you do in preserving what is one of my all time favorite roadside attractions and making sure it's going to be there for my kids and hopefully my grandkids as well.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that
2: yeah thanks for your time ryan and i'm going to give you a call later we got some other stuff to discuss but it's just been such a pleasure having you as our guest and maybe have you back in a year and see how things are going with south of the border i certainly hope a lot of our listeners are going to give you a second look if they stopped as a kid and revisit you and see that there's a lot of specialness still at south of the border it's well worth the stop
0: i appreciate the time thank Thank you. you
2: all right goodbye have a good day You too. So I think we're going to have another commercial break. And we'll be right back and talk about some candy and road trips.
1: Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadobodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shop. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
2: And we're back with the Stucky Hour. Thank you for joining us. And if you didn't get to listen to the first segment, I encourage you to hit the rewind button when we have the podcast on. And here about South of the Border has been one of my favorite roadside attractions since I was a kid. David, did you ever stop when you were traveling along... I ninety five as a kid or even as an adult is fun for all ages.
1: Quite honestly, no. Oh, uh, so much fun. We, uh, you know, we were a long ways away from there when I was growing up uh, in Texas. So we were, we were several thousand miles away just to get to, just to get to the uh, the sombrero. We could get to sombreros much closer by going to Mexico. Going to Mexico.
2: <laughs> well, I just love the story of how it got founded oh, and. Yeah. Founders' stories, to me, are fun and fascinating and educational and just this quirk of, you know, just a coincidence that this traveling salesman happened to need to unload some of his product, and there he was at south of the border and became a iconic roadside attraction that's just synonymous with the Great American Road Trip.
1: All started... I kept wondering you know, as about as a beer the, stand uh, too. How yeah.
2: how fun is that? You I, I, know, just I something kept completely about different. That,
1: the laws on on the people stopping and getting a cold beer and yeah, you know, and going from state to state and crossing borders, state borders.
2: Well, that's why we see so many fireworks stands at yeah. state borders because different states have different regulations with regard to sale of fireworks, sale of alcohol, and so a lot of these. I guess, SIN products, I'm putting in air quotes, <laughs> you'll find just right over the border, South Carolina especially is known for, I guess it's somewhat more lenient fireworks laws. And so that's why, Just about every exit has an amazing fireworks stand year round in South Carolina. And for folks who can see me live on Facebook, I actually have my fireworks t-shirt on today Mm -hmm. that I got in South Carolina at a fireworks stand. It's a black cat t-shirt. And I absolutely I'm a I'm a t-shirt junkie as well as a rubber alligator junkie. I've got Mm -hmm. certain souvenirs when I pull over that I like to collect. I also have a pretty sizable collection of snow globes. That could be an episode in and of itself. Yeah, the ones that you shake, and I love when they have snow globes of Florida, especially because it so rarely snows there. It's just a completely nonsensical object, which is one of the reasons why I love it. Uh, So I'm going to give a brief shout-out before I talk about my road trip adventures last week. We have recently been featured, Stucky's was featured in Retro Fan Magazine, and would love it if you could put this up on the website, David, because I think a lot of your listeners would be interested in this magazine. They talk all about cultural history and fun TV shows, especially from the 1950s and 60s. They have comic books. They have um Movies. They have a lot of stuff like on the Brady Bunch, where are they now kind of thing. Toys that we loved. Uh, This September issue has a feature on Hot Wheels. Hmm. If you ever played with those as a kid, they're still around, but the classic Hot Wheels that are metal are quite the collector's item now. So there's just a lot of fun things. Games that you would have played as a kid in the 70s and 80s. They've got a whole thing on Godzilla, 45 records. And on page seventy-six, there is a four-page, very well-researched article on Stuckies, the history of Stuckies. It was written by my friend Tim Hollis, who's written a book on Stuckies, and Tim and I are working on a reprint. Uh, 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 we're going to update his earlier book with some more archival images, and then a, a couple of additional chapters with more information about my grandfather's history and where we're taking the company now. Uh, so Tim has written a really good four-page synopsis of Stucky's and includes some information about where the company's headed now. So uh, invite your listeners to get the latest issue of Retro Fan, and I'm so happy, especially because we are in the same issue that features 50 years of Shaft. <laughs> which, that's a great article. So I encourage folks to listen to that. So On to road tripping. Last week, I had the pleasure of spending five days on the road exploring South Carolina and had so much fun just looking at roadside attractions that people may sometimes just drive right on by. And one of my favorites was the Button King Museum. That's in Bishopville, South Carolina. It's a little off the beaten path, but as you're going down the road, you'll see a sign that says... The button king, so you know where to turn, and you literally at one point are on a bit of a dirt road to get right up there. And it's next to a farm, and there's a man, he's now deceased, but his son takes care of the museum now. And he had insomnia, and to pass the night away, he became obsessed with buttons like your clothing buttons, not the buttons you pin on yourself. And he started creating art with buttons all different color buttons and he would put buttons on all sorts of objects and turn them into art so he put buttons on guitars he put buttons on clothing he had a whole suit decked out and buttons he put buttons on a car he had a button toilet not sure if i'd want to sit on that he even had a button um uh uh Tombstone. I'm not tombstone, um, coffin. Sorry, a button coffin. And we were afraid to lift it to see if there was anyone inside there. But in the Button Museum, there is a button coffin. I'd like to think that maybe that's a replica of the one he's actually buried in. And the museum is just on the side of a road. And really fascinating to not only see the art that was created, but just to understand this man's story that here he is in a small town couldn't sleep at night and instead of doing what I think a lot of us do which is just read a book or go watch a movie on TV he created something really special and he was on the Phil Donahue show the Geraldo Rivero show he was featured in sitcoms and movies and it just came out of a guy who had a hard time sleeping And then his son is a musician, and the button king was a musician as well. He played guitar. And so next door, they have a music venue. So there is a club there. It's shut down right now because of COVID. But during regular times when we're not in a pandemic, on Saturday nights, you can go there and you can hear live music. So from that modest beginning of just creating button art, there's now a A museum attraction. It's free to visit. And then next door is this music venue. So it's places like that that really fascinate me. And that that same little town has another incredible attraction. It's called Pearl Friars Topiary Garden. So Pearl Friars is actually a man. And he lived right outside the city limits. And he had just a modest ranch house very nice home, but not not ostentatious or grand by any means. But he had a nice yard, and he maintained it really well. And he wanted his yard to be featured as the Yard of the Month Club. Anyone from a small town, I know Eastman, Georgia, where I'm from, that's a big darn deal. The Garden Club in Eastman, if you have that Garden of the Month designation, you get this yard sign in front of your house that says Garden of the Month and it's just a source of pride. And he, Pearl wanted his garden to be considered. And because he was outside the city limits, the garden ladies, and not to not to exclude men, but typically it's a lot of women, especially back in the day when he was creating this, and the garden ladies just weren't going to have him considered because he was outside the city limits. So what Pearl did was he basically decided, well, I'll show them. And he self-taught how to create a topiary garden. And I don't know that much about topiary, but I know it's complicated. But he went to the library. There wasn't the internet at the time. And he learned how to prune shrubs. And then he went from there and he pruned trees. And he created this wonderland of a topiary garden. And it became so Well done and celebrated that he began to attract visitors not only from across the country, but worldwide and especially in the Far East and Japan is where it really is an art to do topiary. He had, he had garden clubs from Japan fly to America and come to Bishopville, South Carolina, foreign delegations to see his topiary garden. And of course, he got a special exemption from the garden club and they did feature him as garden club of the month. So if you go there today, looks like Pearl's a little up in years. Apparently he is still there because his name was on the mailbox, but the topiary could could use some updating and some pruning, but it is absolutely a fantasy wonderland in green and there's sculptures. There's even a brochure that you can pick up that is a walking tour and is in this man's yard in a suburban complex in Bishopville, South Carolina. I know we have to have a quick break, but I just wanna give a shout out to Bishopville, South Carolina before we take our break and say small town America is full of these really fascinating roadside attractions that by the way are free and are not the kind of thing you'll ordinarily see, but behind them are stories of amazing individuals who do something really special that's worthy of recognition.
1: You know, I was just thinking as you were talking about your uh, tour and your trip uh, and checking out different locations is that we live in such a world, uh, just like your guest Ryan was saying, we live in such a world. We put it in GPS and and stomp on the gas pedal, and how quick can we get there? And uh, we we miss the side trips, and the side trips in America are the best trips. You don't know what your um, – growing up, my mother was into antiques, and uh, we'd stop in many small towns and houses that would you know, feature that they had antiques for sale or whatever, and you'd find some of the neatest things, even toy antiques, you know, and uh, this is too bad we live in such a rush that all we focus on is how quick can we get there.
2: Well, yeah, and speaking of antiques, it's collecting things. Mm-hmm is really fun, and that's where the Internet really misses out on the joy of just exploring these antique stores. I can't pass up a good – well, I have to say I'm a little more lowbrow. I like a, a junk store, a thrift store, <laughs> and that's where you can really get your finds. But just that pursuit, and lately I've been really into the jelly glasses. hmm When I was a kid in the 70s, all of the Welch's grape jelly and the different jelly, but we always had grape jelly. It came in these jars that when you finish the jelly, they were glasses, which is so great. My background is sustainability. That is sustainable. Glass won't get into the sidetrack, but glass is very hard to recycle. And a lot of Communities do not include glass in their recycling program. So how great would it be if we could go back to multifunctional glass containers for corporations that are providing us food products? So these glass grape jelly jars, when you were done with the jelly, they were glasses. And so as a kid, our orange juice in the mornings always came in what were formerly our grape jelly jars, and I had the whole Archie comic book collection. That was my favorite. And we pulled over at a antique store, and I'm putting it in air quotes because it was a bit of a thrifty junk consignment place, but had wonderful finds. And in there, I found a Jughead Archie comic book character grape jar, and so of course I bought it. It was only two bucks. What a deal! And my friend I was traveling with, he collects portraits of sea captains, and he found one for $20 framed. So things like that, it's so much more fun pulling over and discovering them than just clicking on Amazon grape jelly jar or on eBay. Not totally dissing those sites since Stucky sells our product on Amazon and we're soon to be up on eBay. We're working on that. But there's something really special about being able to just it's like a scavenger hunt pull over and look for something that you really want to find that you collect
1: well and want everybody to know that this show is all about stuckies and um we want to thank stephanie for coming in every wednesday and doing the show and and you know i'm a nostalgic person and uh we just can't let history get away from us and there's so much so many fun things that we did as kids that uh have been replaced now by electronics which is sad and a lot of kids don't even know how to play together anymore and that's that's sad too and some of the things that uh do you remember or did you ever play pickup sticks
2: absolutely and it's still a game my kids play it do
1: they Mm -hmm. good good yeah and marbles uh you know but that that's learning that's a part of life of association with and playing something fun and monopoly with the whole family or kings on the corner or whatever it happened to be the whole family could be involved in and the whole family can be involved in stopping at stuckies and making your memories for tomorrow and uh, your kids will remember when you go into stuckies it's it's so unique it's so important in our history that the next time you're on the road, you gotta stop at Stuckey's. So with that being said, I'm gonna turn the show back over to Stephanie Stuckey.
2: Thank you, David. I didn't know. Did you do we need to take one more break? Because I thought you said okay. Sorry. Uh, so the last segment I'm gonna talk about a candy, which I've been doing in every episode so far. And I decided to talk about coconut today. And I think I like coconut because it's not a super popular ingredient in candy. And frankly, I think it should be because I'm a coconut fan. And I'll say to cue it up, coconut is actually not a nut. It's just like peanut. Both of them have nut in the name, but peanut's a legume and coconut is a fruit uh, the interesting thing about coconut trees is they can live for up to 100 years. So once you plant them, if you're harvesting them, it's just like the pecan tree. Pecan trees take about seven years to be productive and producing a nut that is edible. Coconut trees, is going to take about four or five years. But once you get them going, they'll last 100 years. Pecan trees will last over 100, tre- 100 years, too. So I like that the pecan tree that Stuckies is really founded on. Our entire company is around pecans. Our product line is, features our favorite nut. Coconut has similar history and is similar in how it's grown and can last up to 100 years. Coconut is also very healthy. It's rich in vitamins and B complex in particular. It's got minerals and it's got fats, but it's got the good fats. So it's good to lower your cholesterol. Nowadays, a lot of people are really into nut milks. Uh, I think almond milk really sort of was the forerunner of what really made the nut milks popular, but coconut milk is becoming more popular as well, and it contains electrolytes, which is really good for metabolism and gives you energy and memory improvement, and, and a lot more coconut oil. We love to cook with that. It's not only good for cooking, but you can put coconut oil on your skin and in your hair, And so it's good for health and beauty. And a few fun facts about coconut before I get into coconut candy. Coconut can be used as a flotation device. God forbid you're ever stuck in the ocean somewhere, you see a coconut uh, floating by, you can grab onto it, it floats. And coconuts are only naturally grown near the coastal areas. So when you see coconut trees in Towns, and you see them throughout Florida that are inland, they were moved there, they were planted there by humans, they don't naturally grow there. You have to move them. So, naturally, they're only going to show up along coastal areas. And there's some cultures that consider the coconut tree almost sacred. Uh, India, in particular, plays an important part in the Hindu religious ceremonies, and the coconut is a symbol of prosperity. If you like Indian cooking, you know that coconut is featured a lot in Indian cooking. It's in the sauces and in a lot of some of our favorite recipes. And in the Philippines, coconut is also very popular. So obviously, any, any country, any culture where you're going to see coconuts growing, it's going to be featured as part of the culture and part of the cooking. And in the Philippines, where you have a lot of coconut trees, General Marcos built an entire palace from Coconut Timber in the 1970s. Hope someday to be able to visit that. Pop culture references. I couldn't let a segment on coconuts get by without giving a shout-out to what I remember coconuts for as a kid, one of my favorite shows was Gilligan's Island. And Marianne was known for her coconut cream pies. Never quite figured out, if you're a fan of the show, how they were able to have an oven and be able to get all the essential ingredients for a coconut pie on this deserted island, but, hey, you had to suspend a little bit of your belief system to follow that show at all. Marianne had the best coconut pies, and so she really helped popularize the coconut. And then, of course, coconuts have been popular in uh, songs. I'm not going to sing it because I have a terrible singing voice, but won't sit under the coconut tree with anyone else. But me. but me, that is a song that was really popular like in the 1940s or 50s, David. You might you might remember the song, but that's, that's featuring the coconut. So the main candy that you will find in most places like CVS and Walgreens featuring the coconut is the Almond Joy. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the Almond Joy. It is... Uh, It was first created in 1919 by Armenian immigrants. And they came to the country, uh, to our country, and they started the Peter Paul Candy Manufacturing Company. And the original Almond Joy was not called Almond Joy. It was called the Dream Bar. It was very similar to what the Almond Joy is today, only instead of the big pieces of almonds on the top they had almond pieces in the candy but it had the three essential ingredients which is milk chocolate, coconut and almonds of course um, so the dream bar really took off in World War II and I think this is an example of resilience that during World War II and I I've, we have a similar history with Stuckies, which I really like that our two candy bars shared this. During World War II, Stuckies had a hard time as well because of sugar rationing. So anyone making candy during World War II had to figure out how to keep going in spite of not being able to access the essential ingredient, which was sugar. And the Dream Bar, the Peter Paul Candy Manufacturing Company, did the exact same thing that Stuckies did to survive World War II, and that was sell candy to the troops. Not only was it helping our country. It was keeping the companies afloat because we had access to the sugar that we needed. And that turned out to be a a blessing in disguise because the company took off. Soldiers loved the Dream Bar. And so when the war ended and they came home and they started buying candy, they were hooked to... The Dream Bar. So they started buying it, and that's when it really took off. Okay, i got a minute left. I'm going to have to fast forward. So the Dream Bar continued to grow in popularity as the Peter Paul Company. You may remember the jingle that was popular in, like, the 70s, Peter Paul Almond Joy. Some, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. So that whole jingle that really helped make the Almond Joy a household name, came about in the 1970s under Peter Paul Company and then they merged with Cadbury Schweppes which is an English candy company in 1978. Fast forward another decade, they were bought by Hershey's so Mound and Almond Joy are the same um, company. Hershey's bought both of those candy bars in 1988 and they bought Almond Joy for $300 million. So pretty good profit there i know i've got to wrap up so i'll just wrap up by taking a bite of almond joy and letting you know that almond joy is still one of my favorite candy bars it has got a soft center and that's because it has this special ingredient that you're not going to find in most candy bars which is the coconut so on that nutty note i will end this week's stucky hour and look forward to talking with y'all next week